Hi everyone, here I am. I'm Kaz and welcome to Stepping Out. Now the reason I said here I am <laughs> like that is because this is precisely what my dad says when he enters a room. And the reason being is probably because he's been in his workshop for hours and he's developed an announcement system so people know that he's back in the house kind of thing. So my guest on today's episode is, you've guessed it, my dear dad. I wanted to chat to him because I think he's an interesting person. I think he's had an interesting life uh, being a post-war baby and coming from an underprivileged background, really, living in a council flat to traveling all over the world for work and then running his own business himself. We talked about his childhood in London and his interest in all things practical. And the lovely thing about this, of course, is that I now have a permanent record of his life to keep. So all the information isn't lost, like with his dad and his family, as he talks about. I had an interesting time editing this and had to stop the recording a couple of times as there was all sorts going on at their house. Internet delays because I live in a tiny hamlet and perhaps the super broadband fibres weren't really playing ball, phones pinging, my mum tidying up a drawer in the background, the telly was on, wine glasses were being put down right next to their iPad. So I did my best, but you know what? It all adds to the ambience and injected a little bit of their home into it as well. I thoroughly enjoyed listening to my dad's tales and I rather think he enjoyed delivering them as well. So go for a stroll and let Terry tell you about his life and I'll be back later and please stay to the end because I have a little favour to ask you. So enjoy the show. Welcome to my little podcast. What do you think? Yeah, I'm apprehensive. I don't know what's going to happen to me. (laughs) (laughs) You don't. Oh, well. But I do trust you, daughter. <laughs> Go on, then. We're, we're going to have a chat, but I've got some questions from the family as well. I've got, I've got a few from other people. Oh, I'm, my I'm God. I'm not going to mention any names yeah. at all, okay? I'm going to start right back from your, from your childhood, Terence. Right. So I go back there. Can you remember anything? Yeah. Okay. Not a lot. Carry on. <laughs> Let's start from the beginning. <laughs> start from the very beginning. So, you were born in London. So I need to yes. know exactly whereabouts because every time you tell me, I forget. So can you tell me where, where you were born and brought up, and um, what was it like living with your three brothers and sisters? Well, we moved into a uh, a council uh, flat when I was two years old, and it was in North London. The area was called Stroud Green. And the closest big place to it is Finsbury Park, I suppose. There's a lot of, um, in a particular area we were in, it had been bombed out severely during the war. And after the war, they built lots of uh, council flats, not massive high-rise type council flats you have these days. They're only sort of four storeys high. And they're generally built as, um, I don't know, a group of three sets of, three blocks of flats uh, surrounding a, a courtyard which was a playground for all the kids and had an area to hang where you're washing out so it was ideal really for people coming back from the war somewhere to you know new places to live yeah my mum and dad live only about uh, two miles away in a place that was um, near Harringay and they lived with my mother's sister for a couple of years and then 
once the children started coming, obviously they became eligible for council dwellings mm-hmm. and uh, got this council flat. And supposedly everyone around them were just amazed how wonderful this council flat was because it was brand new, had all the mod cons and yeah, they loved it. And I lived there for 21 years. And there were four of you in that. So you and your brother and your two sisters. Whatever, six. Well, yeah, six of you all together. So how many, how many rooms were there then? Well, there were three bedrooms. So there were two girls in one bedroom and two boys in the other. Of course, the girls had the bigger bedroom because they were the olders. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, my brother and I had a small bedroom. We slept in the same bed until I, well, how old was I? I was about 11. So he and I slept in the same bed until I was 11 years old. And when my sisters started to leave the nest, which they did fairly early in their lives, I then moved into their bedroom when they're both gone. And they're both gone by the time I was, yeah, about 11. They've left. Oh, yeah, because they're older than you, aren't they? And they got married, yeah. Yeah, so the age range was um, about three years between each of us. Right. So you, you and your brother used to play together and your sisters were older. So where did you go and how did you play? That's what I want to know. So you had this big block of flats and you obviously played with all the other children. What, what did you do for kind of exercise and walking about? How did you do that as a family as well? Well, as kids, we used to all be able to play in, the, uh, in what we called the court. And it was a, a large area. One end of it was uh, an area with uh, washing lines. And that was an area we didn't really play in. But the other area was a sort of tarmacked area. And it had a, a lamppost at the end, which was the cricket. Um, we used to play cricket against the lamppost. And you could then make your own football pitch out on the court. And in those days, there was a road running around this court. But there was not many vehicles because uh, no one had cars in those days until we got older. When we got to about, Mm. I suppose, how old was I? I don't know. I was about eight or so. Cars started coming into the court and the owners didn't like you playing football and kicking balls against their car. But it was up to them, wasn't it? If they wanted to keep their children happy, they had to put up with the uh, footballs kicking the cars and so on. We used to ride our bikes around this courtyard. It had a sort of road around the court and you could ride your bike around there at fabulous speeds we're talking about 1956 is that what we're looking at that kind of year yeah about that yeah i was about nine years old yeah that would be about mm. before that it's very difficult to remember very much before that what before you were in the flats before i was nine i moved to the flats when uh, we were two years old so i don't remember anything prior to that really so as a family then, did you kind of go out and about and do things or did you just kind of entertain yourself in, in that place? Entertain yourself mostly. Um, not very far from us was a park called Finsbury Park. And it was literally, I don't know, three streets away, three blocks of houses away. And you're into a park. So there was a, a bridge across a railway line that went into Finsbury Park Station, which was a, the line that went into King's Cross. And once you went beyond that bridge, there was a fabulous park. And the park had a lake. Um, it had swings. It had um, you know, lovely trees and plants and everything else. So it was our playground. It was fabulous. I used to go up there. Um, I used to, the lake used to go fishing when, when I got older in the lake. Um, it had um, 
a sort of restauranty place where you could get drinks and stuff. And um, it was a it was a big park. Yeah. It was a park that during the war had been used to uh, mount anti-aircraft guns. And oh, right. they had one one section of the park was called the American Gardens, where they the Americans had their their base, as it were. And I imagine they had, I don't know, manned uh, anti-aircraft guns because they were trying to protect the railway line that ran right through the park. Mm. So when you were little, did you notice lots of kind of post-war stuff still hanging around? Because obviously you were born in 47 and the war finished 45. So there was a few years for them to kind of start bringing things back. But did you notice that, you know, there were still sort of remnants of war things going on? Oh, yeah. Right outside of our particular block of flats, literally mm. across the road, there was a bomb site. Yeah. The bomb site was where the houses had been bombed and no one was allowed to live in them because they were, they were unsafe and they, they had been, been left derelict. You, but as kids, you could still get in them. Mm. So they were brilliant. They were fabulous places to wander around. And some of them still had sort of kitchen stuff in and... Uh, you could go up through the stairs. Most people could take out whatever furniture they could and got to mm. live somewhere else. You could still wander around in there yeah, and have a great time as a kid. But the police were on to you. They didn't want people going in there because the houses were unsafe. Yeah, And they were, they were going to demolish them. And I got caught once by a, a copper and I could hear him coming in front doors. I was, I was up middle of the house just looking around as you do and I, I he sort of wandered up and he trapped me in the top room of this house then started questioning me as to what I was doing and one thing and another and uh, I supposedly uh, really put the frighteners out of me so that I didn't keep doing it you know and go and tell your friends that you'd been nobbled by a copper it was quite interesting for me in later life to look on the internet and find all the areas around that area that I lived in that had been bombed. And there is a website that you can go to and it shows you all the bomb sites. And sure enough, it showed the exact location of where we lived in those council flats and all the other council flats that were in that area. Because obviously it was easier um, for them to knock all those houses down and um, start again. And council flats were the obvious thing to house all the uh, population. Yeah. So a quite an in interesting place to live and somewhere you spent... How long did you live in London for? I lived there until we got married. and I was 21 when we... Ah, uh, when you met Mama. When when I met my lovely wife, yeah, I was seventeen when I met my wife, but I was um, twenty one when we got married and moved out of the area. But when you but when you were young, just just slightly before you met the the, the wonderful mother, um, did you have any thoughts back then as to what you wanted to do with your life? Because obviously you were a post war baby, and you were in this environment with you know in your council flat with your parents with your four, three brothers and sisters. What was it that you kind of dreamed of doing or did you not really have any projections into the future? Because I can't imagine you not having that. You know, was there anything that you really thought, oh, one day I'm going to do this? 
No, I don't think there was. It was, a, it was a period when you left school and you were slightly petrified as to what the hell you were going to do for a job. Um, I had, at the age of 13, taken up the job as a delivery boy for a hardware shop called Williams Brothers on the, um, on the A1 in, uh, in London. <laughs> and uh, when I was about 15, so I'd obviously been there two years, they offered me a full-time job. And I said, no, I don't want to be a full-time hardware-type shop person. And, and I left that job and uh, started my own business as a professional car cleaner. And uh, so that's what I did. I, I worked around uh, Hampstead. Was that job in the hardware shop where you rode your bike around and you had to deliver oil or something? That's right, yeah. Oh, that tell was. us that, that story the... then. Well, I, I got the job from a friend of mine that lived in the uh, flat down below. And he had got to the point where he was older than me and he got to the point where he had had enough of the job. And he said to me, did I want to take up the job? So we went off to see the shop manager. And I think I slightly um, exaggerated my age and said I was 14 when I was only 13. But I was long and lanky and probably could just about pass for it. But uh, so the shop manager said, OK, well, it's, um, you know, as part of the interview, as it were, let's, uh, let's see what you're up to. Now, your job will mainly be... Uh, or possibly be delivering uh, five-gallon drums of uh, paraffin. So as a little test, let's see you fill up a five-gallon drum, take it out through the shop, across the pavement, load it onto the bike, and um, see how you get on with that. So anyway, I did the loading of the, the tank was fine because you had a, a like an equivalent of a beer pump they used to, in the back room, there was a whacking great tank of paraffin and there was a beer pump thing that you used. And as it happened, the beer pump would administer about half a pint of, of paraffin into a can. So you measured out the, the, the uh, paraffin into this five gallon drum. Then I struggled out to pick up the five gallon drum because bearing in mind five gallons, that's 50 pounds weight of paraffin and the drum took it out to the uh, pavement where he was standing with my friend that had uh, given me the job. Um, fortunately, just as he, he uh, said, okay, well, let's put it into the basket on the front of, of the bike, a customer came up and uh, started asking him questions. And then my, <laughs> my friend and I, both of us picked the uh, paraffin up and put it into the basket, put the five gallon drum in and, um, by the time he looked round again, it was in the basket, and that was it. I'd got the job, you know, because I could do that. That was the, the key thing. He thought if he could get it in the, the basket, then I've got the, the job. So I got the job. Mm. And yeah, I could do I could just about lift that tank into the basket, but it was a struggle. <laughs> so you left there and you started your own professional car cleaning business. I left there after about two years, so I did that. It was only a Saturday job bear in mind mm -hmm. they did then say to me okay if you want to earn more money you can come on a friday night as well yeah and i'll pay you for doing that so they paid me the fee <laughs> i'm calling it a fee they used to pay me a pound for doing saturday 
And if I came on Friday night as well, it would be another 50p, the equivalent <laughs> of, but that was 10 bob in those Rolling days. It wasn't 50p. It. It, was, so it was £1.50. I, I quite liked the job, actually, because it was riding all around the streets around uh, that area. bit dangerous. Bearing in mind, the, the shop was actually on the A1. That's right. the Great North Road, really, going north right up through England. And, of course, it was all the lorries were coming out of London, going up this road, going up through Highgate and off over around the North Circular and then, you know, carrying on up around the A1. Of course, if you wanted to, it was on a hill, this, this Williams Brothers shop. And often you'd be sent up um, Highgate under uh, the the bridge there at high up on Highgate Hill, and um, to get up there, they'd often give you maybe two gallons to go and take to some old lady in a, a block of flats or a house. And one easy way to get up there was to go not on the company bike with the basket, but put the two gallons on the back of your own bike, and then attempt to go up the uh, the hill and then find an accommodating lorry that would uh, you could get on the back of. So you could hold on the back of the lorry and it would take you up the hill, no effort whatsoever. The only problem is you had to make sure that the lorry driver couldn't see you in his wing mirror. And it took me, it took me a couple of goes because I actually had a lorry stop and tell me to get off the back of the lorry because uh, it was dangerous. So it's a bit like Back to the Future. Yeah. Especially carrying two gallons of paraffin. Yeah. But I was a bit of an evil delivery boy because I remember once thinking, this is a waste of time for me doing this, taking this paraffin up to these flats, these posh flats in Highgate, up to the um, one place. There was three floors I had to take this paraffin up to. And um, then they wanted me to empty my paraffin can into their paraffin can. And I thought, oh, I don't like this. This is really rubbish. So... I left a little bit of paraffin in my can. On the way down, I dribbled it down the stairs. And not realising these flats all had caretakers. When I got to the bottom, this caretaker said, Oi, what do you think you're doing? And I skedaddled out of the place. Consequently, I never got an order for any paraffin in that house ever again. So, yeah, <laughs> that's how it worked. <laughs> Live and learn, it's called. So then you met Mum. How did you meet her and what made her the one? And it must have been something because you've been married to her for 50 years. So what was it about her that made you think yeah, she's a keeper? Well, it's a, I don't know, it's a bit complicated, really. I mean, I, I sort of knew of her through uh, friends, in particular one friend, a friend called Stuart Evans, uh, he now lives in Perth in Australia, but at the time, we're talking now when we were about 17 or so, he had a girlfriend that he'd been going out with for some time, and he was a very good friend of my now dear wife. And um, he sort of recommended maybe you should, you know, consider this lovely lady that, um, that I know. So I said, oh, okay, fine, let's set something up. And so the idea was we were going to go to the, uh, the cinema or the pictures, as we used to know it. So we picked a location, which was top of Muswell Hill, 
in London, in North London, and there was the cinema there that uh, we all agreed to meet. So a bunch of girls turned up, one of which was my lovely wife, Nina. But um, it got a bit confused because Stuart had organised this get-together, but there were about, I don't know how many girls there were, there were probably four girls, uh, Stuart and I. It got oh, a bit so confusing. you could kind of take your pick. Well, it, this is the weird thing. I don't know what Stuart had really arranged. I've never even asked him what, how he arranged it, what he arranged. Anyway, this one girl, she suddenly sort of latched on to me, or I don't know whether that's true or not. But when we, when we came to sit down, for some reason, I got sat next to this girl who suddenly became very friendly. And, um, you know, I thought, well, the girl I'm really interested in is up the other end of the, you know, about four seats away. But this girl latched onto me and became, as I say, very friendly. But um, her name was, I better not mention her name. Here no, she turns not. up at the door. But... I thought that was her at the door then. <laughs> <laughs> it got very, very confusing. But after the cinema and after the film, we then did get together. That is, my friend Stuart introduced me to my now wife and we wandered off out the cinema and went to the Wimpy Bar in Muswell Hill where the love was just, it blossomed. And it was just unbelievable. And uh, I can't even remember what we had to eat. I don't even remember if we had anything to eat or drink. You had a bender. Yeah. You had a bender. <laughs> I could have. <laughs> Should we move on? That's where love struck. The arrow mm. of love was oh. fired. I don't know who fired it, but it landed. So after the wimpy bar thing, I, I did say on the way home, no, I'm not ready to uh, to sort of strike up another relationship. But love prevailed. And here we Aww. are, 50 years later. And then, and then you had um, my sister in London. You got married. You were 20, 20 whatever. I two, was 21. One. I was 21, yeah. Then you had um, Emma at 23. And then you had me two years later. That is really, really young by That's today's correct, standards. Yes. So you must have felt like your life had just sort of started. And then we came along. What on earth? Did that feel like? It wasn't really young in those days. That was normal. 21 was normal age, really. But bearing in, bear in mind, my sisters got married. One was 18 mm. on her 18th birthday, mm. and the other one was only 16. Yeah. So I felt yeah. quite old at 21. Yeah. And then, so you got married, you had, well, you had Emma in London, and then you moved to High Wycombe because of a job no we moved to northampton no we moved to we moved to um northampton first of all mm. and um i'd moved there as part of my job yeah i, I was working at the time uh, you've skipped a whole chunk of my life oh go the on then of, go back go back go back rewind well, from the age of 19 through to 21 I, I joined a company called rank xerox and at that age of 19, well, actually before that, I started uh, work when I was 16 for a company called Sangamo Western. And they were a company that made aircraft instruments and electric meters for houses. And I started there at the age of 17 as a trainee draftsman. So I had my own drawing board and I used to draw for this company drawings related to these instruments. 
Yeah. Uh, and I did that for two years. And then in a pub, I met a friend of mine, a school friend, and he announced that he was going to uh, get a job as an apprentice working for Rank Xerox. And I thought, well, this sounds good. And I got the job as an apprentice. It was a four-year apprenticeship, supposedly. And I started that apprenticeship in North London. And I did that for, uh, I was supposed to do it for four years, but I only did it for two. Because I went to them and said, look, I'm older than the rest of these guys. I'm getting fed up with them. Can I do something else? And they said, oh, okay, we'll give you another job. Uh, you can go and work with the, uh, the more mature apprentices in London. So I was then given a job as a trainee service engineer working in uh, the centre of London around Hoban. And I was called a walking engineer where you had a, a toolkit in one hand and then you went walking around the streets into offices, fixing their, their office equipment. Oh, wow. I didn't know about that job. So you're actually walking around. You're just doing a walking job. Walking, yeah. You walk from office to office. Every office in London had a Xerox machine. Mm -hmm. In those days, there was no internet, no anything. Everyone used to copy stuff. They'd type it, they'd copy it. Xerox were making a fortune out of these copiers. And um, as I say, everyone had a copier. And uh, they all were ever breaking, forever breaking down for one reason or another, operator problems or, or whatever. Yeah. When you're trying to put a piece of paper through a, a complicated uh, set of rollers and so on, and a, a fire effectively, a fire was there to use the, uh, to heat the copy and fix the toner onto the paper. And often used to catch fire. These copiers even had their own fire extinguisher built into them underneath. And um, did you think that that job then, when you worked for for there, you know, and you were doing, you managed to get into that role? Do you think that was a kind of pivotal point in your life that and allowed you to move on? Because obviously, later on, you started your own business, um, and you travelled abroad with Rank Xerox as well. So you became. You know, you sort of worked your way up. Yeah, if I'd have stayed in uh, Sangamo Western yeah. as a draftsman, that's mm -hmm. all I would have done, been a draftsman. So I'm absolutely so glad that I met my mate in the pub who said he was going to be an apprentice. Starting down that route was absolutely fantastic for me. Yeah. Because I went from that lowly position of um, apprentice to the magnificent position of the grand title of International Customer and Service Training Manager. And I had 22 operating companies reporting to me. So was that when you went to Russia and, and then got drugged by the Russians? No, that was much earlier in my career. That was, uh, this career goes on and on, I tell you. Um, when I finished my two-year apprenticeship, damping the streets of, of Great Portland Street, I managed uh, to get a job as a training officer. So I'd gone to the training schools to be trained. And I thought, this is a good idea, training people. Why don't I do that? So then I applied for a job as a training officer. And lo and behold, the guy that interviewed me, he was doing the same higher national certificate training scheme that I was doing. But he was about 30 and I was only about 20. And he was so impressed that I was doing the same scheme as him. 
he gave me the job. So I got a job as a training officer. And then I got, this was another great pivotal break. While I was doing that job, I was working on one particular type of product, a big, big copier, computer fan fold feeder copier, big copier. And I was a bit of a specialist in this thing. The secretary that worked in this training school, she said to me, I've just seen a notice on the notice board asking for a job up in the headquarters, international headquarters for rank Xerox up in Euston Road. Why don't you apply for it? So anyway, I went and looked at it, thought, yeah, I'll, I'll ask if I can do it. I applied for this job and I did this secondment job for six months in this international headquarters where most of the guys in that department were PhDs or BSCs, things that I didn't have, but they were just really, really a good bunch of guys, really clever characters. So a lot of them were from other parts of the world. And suddenly I was in this department and I thought, this is fantastic, this, you know. So I was working away. And of course, I had all the practical knowledge that they wanted and they got me involved in preparing these uh, training programs using some sort of logic system that they had in place. So I got educated and they sucked all the knowledge out of me so that they could get their programs underway. And eventually that all worked. And uh, because I like the department, I, I got a job later in that same department. Yeah. Back a step. After the six months, I got kicked back to the training center, training all these guys that were coming in from effectively from the forces, the uh, the Army, Navy, Air Force. Okay. They were all brought in as rank Xerox service engineers. When they finished their careers in, in these forces, they came in to be trained because they were considered ideal service engineers. Then they announced that the training centre was moving from Great Bolton Street in London to Newport Pagnell in Buckinghamshire. And if we wanted to go, they would pay for us to move. And I thought, well, this is good. So at the time, we were just about ready to buy our first house. So um, off we went to Northamptonshire and we saw a house. We bought it. By this time, we'd been married for a couple of years and uh, we'd had a, a child, which was my daughter, Emma. And so she was six weeks old when we moved into that brand new house, which we paid the magnificent sum. This is for a three bedroom chalet bungalow. 10 pence. Brand new for £4,090. Mm. I remember we... we um. We obviously lived really nicely when we were younger. You know, we had a, a nice three-bedroom family home because everything was about 20 pence back then. Yeah. Um, and so, and obviously it's, it's different kind of scenario and you, and you had a good job and, and everything. And then and then we moved to America for a year. Did, did you ever consider moving us there permanently? Um, probably... No, it was a really good experience and I got a lot of lot of knowledge and so on from working with the Americans. Yeah, it was a total experience that um, obviously helped me in later life and, and so on. You, you jumped ahead a bit there when we got that job in um, 
Newport Pagnall. I worked there for about a year or so, because by that time, I was still in the training centre. But I, I noticed a job came up, a permanent job came up in the international headquarters for Rank Xerox in Euston Road. They had a job and I applied for it and I got the job. That's when I got, I was travelling because it was an international setup. That's when I got the opportunity to go off to uh, various countries like uh, Russia, all, all of Europe, France and places. And then over to Australia, New Zealand, Los Angeles. And yeah, so it was quite um, an experience. And then I worked my way up through that department, but then they decided to send me off to America. So off we went to America for a year and a day. Got lots of experience over there. Then came back, worked in that international department for a bit and gradually worked my way through the system to the point where they opened up a training centre in Aylesbury. So they brought people in from these 22 operating companies. And we had a training centre there. We trained them all and sent them back to their countries and then followed up to make sure they could do the job properly. And yeah, eventually I got the job of uh, being in charge of the 22 operating companies. But then I got fed up with it because I figured that the Americans were pulling out of uh, the UK and reducing their, their international department. And then I thought two of us got together, then suddenly it was three, then it was four. Then we thought we'd leave Rank Xerox because Rank Xerox were starting to offer, well, the Americans actually were making people redundant and they came up with a voluntary redundancy scheme. And I thought, well, one of the guys that I'd worked in America with wanted to leave as well. So we all took the voluntary redundancy plan, much to the annoyance of the personnel department who, who declared it wasn't for us, this plan. It was for us to reduce our staff numbers. But because they had put it in writing, we could go. We did go. So we took the redundancy package and we set our own little uh, business up in competition with uh, Rank Xerox. And this was Xylon. This was Xylon. This was your business that you had. How long did you have that business for? 16 years. Mm. And and that, yeah. and that must have been quite hard to... I mean, obviously, you still had us as children knocking around. Um, yeah. It must be a bit of a juggle, because I remember when you started that, when we were living in High Wycombe, and, you know, to get that off the ground and to... Because it was... You weren't only selling photocopies and fax machines, but you were also servicing them. Um, that must have been quite difficult. How did you juggle that with family life as well, with us lot? Uh, well, I mean, you know, it's very much, it's, it was, in the end, it was, um, it was like any business, you do your work and you come home and you do your family, as it were. Mm. Um, you just fit it all in. Yeah, we were spending, initially, when we first started it, we were spending long hours in our uh, offices we had in Aylesbury. Um, but I don't know, just it just gradually it. sort of, just became a, a business that that grew. At the time, it was it was a, a blossoming business. Mm. Bear in mind, there was no internet. Everyone needed photocopiers, and they needed fax machines, and they needed word processors. So it was a blossoming business. It just literally. Because I've got a question about that actually from a family member. Um, 
what yeah. invention has changed your life the most? Would you say it's probably that or something else? The internet has got to be the thing. I mean, I can remember the Canon products that we were selling. They suddenly came out with equipment that was really so much more sophisticated than a regular old copier. It was something that um, was totally different. Uh, it was called the Cano file. And it was a machine that you could file information in. And I thought, this is so different. And also, uh, of course, the internet came along. And I can remember the technical guy, we had a young guy in our company at that stage said to me, why don't you go into this a bit more? Why don't you go into the internet side of it a bit more? And he said, in particular, everyone at the moment is into domain names. Mm. So you could get the names of these companies, create a website for them and sell them that domain name. In other words, you could capture their company name. And at the time we didn't know, know enough about it. Oh, and shame. Said, no, we're not going to go that route. But that particular guy was spot on. If we'd have done Absolutely. that. Yeah. But, but it was enough of a signal at that stage for me to start thinking that um, the business is changing. All the service engineers we had, we had to, I had to try and start re-educating them about things like this Cano file. And a lot of them were not happy doing that. And I thought we're into a, another sort of world here. And this company that we've got is a bit out of date and it's not going to be able to catch up without a hell of a lot of work. Mm. But at the same time as me thinking all this, there are other companies out there that were trying to expand their copier empire. And so you sold it. I made contact with one and literally, yeah, sold it. My business yeah. partner at the time wasn't that happy. He was five years younger than me and he was happy to, uh, to carry on. I mean, I was 51 and he was only 40, 46. Yeah. So he's glad uh, now though. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, he, he got a job at the company that bought us, so he was all right. Mm. Let's talk about your ability to make and fix things, Dad, because you've built, in your time, you've built an Austin Healey car, which you discovered had a stolen engine, but we won't talk about that. And um, you quite literally could make anything out of anything, I think. And you're a brilliant carpenter and you would turn as well. You know all about electricity and tiling and roofing and I could go on and on. And products I alone have received, and I've had to make a note of these, are from Terry's workshop, kitchen table, which I'm actually working on now in my office. Um, occasional tables, you built a stage for my little fitness studio, a candle box, radiator covers, as well as a raft of things you fixed for me and every other member of our family and your village. <laughs> Where did your interest come from to do all this stuff? And so well, and what's your invention, best invention, you reckon, for date that's the best? Oh, oh, oh well, I'm working on my best one. Okay. Uh, <laughs> where did it come from? It came from, I don't know, Meccano, probably. <laughs> I don't know. I honestly don't know. It, it, I had an interest when I was about 14, 
um, at school. When I look at my school reports, it was the only thing I was any good at. Uh, woodwork and metalwork. And I was so keen on the metalwork. I actually signed up for an evening class just to do uh, metalwork evening classes. And uh, it was just something I was just interested in. I can't tell you why. I can't. There's nothing to do with my... My dad was quite... It helped people when their cars broke down. Yeah. But he wasn't really a technical guy. So I didn't really get it from him. I'd, I don't know where it came from, to be honest. Because your brother, your, bro your brother's not really into that, is he? No, he's not. He's not really, uh, he's not Mr. Handyman, no. No, he's not. I don't think he is anyway. I might be decrying him, but I, I don't think so, no. Mm. just something that I've always had an interest in at the age of about 15 or 16 I remember seeing programs on the television like William Tell and they, they had crossbows and I thought I can make one of those so I uh, set to, to work to make a crossbow they used to fire it very uh, very unsafely I think outside just to test it see how far it would go Yeah. when it came to bonfire night I thought I can make a gun. So we made a gun and took it up the park and tested it and fired it. So it was all a bit, you know, a bit, I don't know, a bit weird, really, a bit challenging. Anything that came up, I wanted to have a go at. Yeah. My dad, he, he had a car that he suddenly got fed up with, didn't use it. Before I knew it, I was taking the cylinder head off. And I thought, I don't know what I'm doing, but I just want to do it. And, <laughs> and then I got to the point where I thought, Oh, I wouldn't mind spraying that car. So I sprayed the car, his car, sprayed it all. He gave me permission. I didn't do it. I just got on and did things. So I don't know why. Did, did you, didn't you um, take a motorbike apart or something in the front room? Was that, did I remember that right? Oh, in my bedroom. My, my, my bedroom, bedroom, yeah. I took my, motorbike in, took my motorbike into my bedroom and stripped it down and put it back together again. I mean, it was weird that my mother and my dad just let me do it. It's just so weird. Yeah. And the weird, really weird thing was, I thought to test it, I better start it. So I actually started it in the bedroom uh, <laughs> just to test it work before I took it back downstairs because we were on the first floor. But anyway, so yeah, so it's a bit, it's a bit weird, isn't it, really? Not really. I think it's great. I've got, a, I've got another question for you. From, yeah, go on then. <laughs> somebody who likes to be known as your favourite grandchild. We don't have to mention that, um, who that is. Yeah. Good money. Um, what what is your greatest or favourite achievement? And it doesn't have to include her. Achievement overall, well, I suppose well, it was building uh, a company and then getting to the point where we sold it and made sufficient money that, you know, kept us going. I haven't had to work since I was age 51. So... That was the greatest achievement, I suppose. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, apart from having keeping married, keeping married to my wife, I've got to say that. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, how's that been in lockdown with just mum? No, very good, very good, really. Uh, We're very tolerant. There's, there's very few times when you, um, you know, you, you lose the sense of balance. Yeah, and uh, she's such a good provider and uh, looker after her. She is. And so, so she's, she's been excellent. She keeps it all together. If you could walk with anyone, 
and it do, it doesn't have to be anybody that's that's here. It could be somebody from the past. Who would that be, and where would you go, and what would you ask them? I think I think uh, it would. I was thinking the only person, not one person, but there would be two. It'd be my mum and dad. But in particular, I'd start with my dad, and say, you know, let's find out more about my dad. So I'd like to go back to. Uh, yeah, where he grew up, and I knew he grew up in Hackney in East London, and um, I'd like to take walks around that area and him to, to give me a rundown as to where he grew up, where he went to school, when he left school, uh, who all his brothers were, because I know some of them, but I don't know, there was one in the family that got... Uh, uh, left out. I can remember there were three brothers that I knew that were un that I considered as, as uncles. One very close, which was my uncle Stan. Then there was an uncle Ted, and then there was an uncle Bert. Uh, but there was another brother that wasn't mentioned. I'd like to ask my dad, why wasn't he? Why was he thrown out of the family? What did he do? You know. Yeah. Uh, how, so many, how many did he have back. then? Did he have loads? Well, yeah, no, yeah. Uh, he had four brothers and a sister right. and, and I'm not sure if he had another sister but that shows you how much I don't know about the family yeah. the sister, I only, I only remember visiting her once in, the, in my whole life so I'd like to find out uh, about there's a whole intriguing area that um, has gone forever mm. I don't know anyone that knows anything, I can't can't think of anybody that can fill me in on uh, on information. So, yeah, it'd be good to to get him back. And uh, I've I've got an outline of his life, what he did. But um, yeah, I'd like to question him a bit more. There are lots of parky areas around. There's Hackney. There's marshes around there. There's there's Victoria Park and places like that. To have a stroll around, yeah and get the feeling for the old world that he lived in. That's what I'd like to do, yeah. I remember as kids, we used to tell us a story and it was about a man who had a magic wallet and every time he spent anything out of the magic wallet, it replenished itself with money. <laughs> do you think that came from the fact that you were brought up with not much money and you lived in a council flat? Was it born out of the fact that you didn't have lots and lots of things and lots and lots of money? Is that where that came from? I can remember loads of stories to tell you, but I can't really remember that one in particular. You can't remember but, that story? No, not particularly, no. But we really remember it. We, we, we mention it now sometimes, actually. It's quite... And it was lovely for us because as children we said, oh, that would be so lovely if you could, because children have never <laughs> got any money. And so it was always, oh, wouldn't that be great if we could just have that wallet and it wouldn't matter what you bought <laughs> in the whole world. Oh, memories. Well, it's lovely to get it all down. Yeah, I wish I'd got my dad to spill out his story when he was young and my mum. My yeah. mum equally, both of them. It's ha it's handy to have, like you said, you, you don't remember or you don't know enough or much about your dad or what happened to him when he was growing up. So it's really, really good to hear. So it's been really nice. Thank you very much. OK, then. Can I get another glass of wine now? Yeah, you can. Thank 
Thanks, Dad. I'm so pleased you agreed to be on my podcast. It means a lot. And I learned a lot too. And I also heard myself in you as well. So a really special thing. I'd like to take this opportunity to let you know, in the interest of helping others, that my dad has recently been diagnosed with prostate cancer and is about to start chemotherapy. To fill you in, in case this disease hasn't touched your lives, that prostate cancer affects one in eight men in the UK. Yes, one in eight. And it's the most commonly diagnosed cancer in the UK. And 129 men are diagnosed every day and 400,000 men are living with it right now. The sad thing is men aren't screened for this cancer and so they only know they have it when they get symptoms and it only takes a blood test to show the possibility, which can then lead to further tests. Survival rates are good, but it would help to have a warning system in place to detect the cancer early on. I mean, us women have loads of screenings and vaccinations and tests, but our men are suffering. So I would like you to do me a favour if you have a moment and ask you to sign the online petition I put in the episode description, which will go towards having the government discuss this possibility of providing this screening process. Thank you. Every signature counts on these things. So if you can chuck it on your Facebook and Twitter page, then brilliant. And thank you for listening too. It means a lot as always. And if you like this podcast, do share it with your friends and family. And if you'd like to be on the show, tell me your story. Drop me a line at steppingoutthepodcast at gmail.com. Keep listening, keep subscribing as I have more interesting guests coming up. So take care, everyone. If you've got lockdown-itis like me, we will come out of this soon, I'm sure. Lots of love, and I look forward to having you along next time. Thank you.